This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. In Season 1, we spent a little time tracking the Enlightenment's impact on the Christian faith. Dual impetuses emerged, one leading to liberalism, the other to fundamentalism, which was the reaction of orthodoxy to the challenges of liberalism. In this episode, we're going to drill down a little bit on Christian liberalism. Those promoting theological liberalism hoped to bring Protestantism into the modern world of science, philosophy, and secular history. The pastor of the hugely influential Riverside Church in New York City and a champion of liberalism, Harry Emerson Fosdick, wrote in his autobiography that he aimed to make it possible for a person to be both an intelligent modern and a serious Christian. Theological liberals grappled with a dilemma as old as the faith. How were they to make religious faith meaningful to the world without compromising the gospel? That seemed especially difficult for modern liberals, since so much of the philosophy of the modern world had itself arisen as a reaction against religion in general and Christianity in particular. In making Christianity palatable to the growing number of people who were being more influenced by a secular than a religious worldview, Liberals gutted the faith of many of those elements that seemed as impediments to a rational mind. The result was a liberalism that begs the question, why bother with faith at all if what you have is so watered down, so void of content that there's no point in maintaining the facade? Richard Neubauer explained theological liberalism as believing in, quote, a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, unquote. Liberals concluded that theology had to be reconciled to science and rationalism if it hoped to hold a place in the modern world. They refused to take as fact doctrine that rested on authority alone. Whether that authority was tradition ensconced in ecclesiastical hierarchy or the authority of scripture, they insisted that faith had to align with the tests of reason. Doctrine must conform to scientific norms. A subtle edit was made to the way that people did theology. You know, classically, it had been that God was understood as infinite while man was finite. He's limited. So God would always be bigger than man's intellect. While God made man in his image so that he could have a meaningful relationship with him, there would always be aspects of God's being that transcended man's finite mind. God could be apprehended, but he could not be comprehended. Liberals tweaked that and said that the human mind was able to think God's thoughts after him. Therefore, God was to be understood through reason and deduction. God could not transcend the realm of human experience. It was this point that gave theological liberals their access into making an appeal to modern people. They knew that the cold, mechanistic, purely rational world of the atheist left out a key experience that all human beings possess, the realm of feeling. Now, by feeling, we're not just talking about emotions, though that is a part of it. Deep down inside, human beings have the sense that their lives have purpose, meaning that there's some great reason for their existence. They have momentary flashes of revelation that result in profound wonder, the experience of love and awe. All these conspire to impress people with an unshakable awareness that there's 
more than just corporeal collections of chemicals animated by random electrical impulses that accrue the label alive. Interesting that throughout history, people may have not known why they existed, but they certainly had a sense there was a reason and spent a good portion of their lives seeking to discover it. Liberals glommed on to this very real, if otherwise irrational, faculty of feeling within people as the point of contact with modernity, saying that they could help scratch that itch because it was the religious urge that they had answers for. Christianity wasn't irrelevant, as secularists gleefully proclaimed. Liberals confidently claimed that their edited form of Christianity could nurture and provide solace for modern man's emotive self. It would babysit his soul while the rest of him got on with the harsh demands of modernity and progress. Liberals conflated the spiritual realm with human consciousness, especially that capacity to feel, the intuitive self that endlessly seeks connection with others. They called it the God consciousness. Some just called it God. Indeed, the God of the Bible who exists beyond the realm of time and space was exchanged for a deity within creation who'd long been at work through natural law to produce the universe as we have it today. One liberal poet wrote, quote, Some call it evolution, others call it God, unquote. The new darling of modern science, evolutionary theory quickly became fact for the rationalists. Liberals were duty-bound to accommodate to the new ideas. They attempted a reconciliation of their beliefs with evolution. They claimed that Darwinian evolution supplemented Christianity. They regarded scripture, the church, faith, and even the human soul as all being products of evolutionary progress. But it was in modernity's impact on the study of history that Christianity faced its biggest challenge. Science questioned God's role in creation, but the new approach to history challenged Christianity's authoritative base, the Bible. And this is where we turn to speak of biblical criticism. Now, as used here, criticism doesn't mean to rip the scriptures to shreds. The Bible critic is an academic or a scholar who approaches the text from a rationalist perspective. They find a scientific base for their conclusions rather than accepting religious dogma. Biblical criticism had two flavors. There was what's known as lower and then higher criticism. Lower criticism handled issues of problems with the written text. It dealt with things like manuscripts, the ages, transmission, quality, and other physical realities attached to so many ancient documents. It produced little of concern for Orthodox believers. But that can't be said of higher criticism, which attacked the traditional and accepted meaning of the text. Driven by the need to reconcile Scripture with the accepted standards of rationalism, miracles and the supernatural were dismissed, assumed to be flights of fancy for a pre-scientific world that evolution had blessedly delivered humanity from. Higher critics went to work investigating when the scripture was written, who wrote it, to whom and why. The problem is they brought to their study almost a knee-jerk determinism to disregard anything traditionally believed about the scriptures, and their conclusions shook orthodoxy to its core. The Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, which tradition said were penned by Moses, were given a new treatment by higher criticism, which developed the documentary hypothesis, claiming that it had been written by four or more different authors. 
passages that were thought to be prophetic were made out to have been penned long after the fact, but only made to look like they were written before so that the events would look like they were coming from a higher source. Higher critics said that the Gospel of John wasn't written by John, that is. They made it their aim to liberate the real historical Jesus from the one that traditional Christianity and even the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had made him. Discontent with the Jesus of Scripture, they wrote their own accounts of what he was really like. Never mind that they were penned nearly 2,000 years later. Apparently, it's better to trust the scholarship of a liberal scholar informed by rationalism than one of the guys who lived with Jesus. The upshot of biblical criticism was the bruising blow that it leveled to the confidence of the average person in the reliability of the Bible as a valid witness to the Christian faith. But liberals saw in it a radically different approach that opened the door to the new class of intelligent moderns, as Fosdick called them, who wanted to scratch that indelible religious itch. Liberals no longer had to apologize for difficult passages that the skeptics had questioned. They said that those passages were, well, merely the inclusions of fallible people whose societies hadn't evolved yet. So, in this new version of Christianity, if authority no longer lay in Scripture, where did it lie? Where was its new home? Liberals suggested it lay in experience. The early 19th century saw the rise of a reaction to the cold, sterile mindset raw rationalism tended to produce. That reaction was called Romanticism, and it flowed most demonstrably in the realms of philosophy and the arts. It looked at life through feelings. Romanticism railed against the idea that humanity was just some cog in a vast universal machine. It stressed the individual's pursuit of meaning, relevance, and purpose, not through propositional truths that produce doctrines, but through feeling alive in such a way that it sparked a sense of wonder that fueled the awe that leads to worship. While the rationalist sees lightning and proceeds to explain how and why it strikes, the romanticist says, yes, God, do it again. Romanticism swept those branches of Christianity that had been shaken by rationalism. Romantic Christianity forfeited the intellectual realm to modernity and retreated into a kind of religious sentimentalism that was centered on feeling. God no longer lived in people's heads, only in their hearts. Some went so far as to assign their intellect to rationalism while maintaining an emotional attachment to religion. Faith and reason were divorced. As one said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. The two most influential proponents for Christian Romanticism were a couple of German theologians named Albrecht Ritschel and Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher said that attempts to provide a rational basis for Christianity were useless because, well, they missed the point. Religion wasn't about proof. It was about feeling. God isn't needed to explain origins. He's needed to provide a reason for existence. Who cares how we got here? All that matters is why we're here now. And that why doesn't need to be connected to the how or the what or the when or the where of intellectual investigations. For Schleiermacher, religion was intuition and feeling, the awareness that there must be a reason back of it all. And being a genuine human and being a genuine human being meant being intentional about finding that reason. Schleiermacher was critical of Orthodox Christianity that located what it believed in creedal statements embodying propositional truth. 
He said that modern Christianity must eject those creeds. And if it failed to do so, well, it would lose the battle for the hearts of modern men and women. He cast sin as a sense of alienation and isolation from others, supremely from God. That alienation came from being selfish and was remedied by being kind, being compassionate, by linking one's inner sense of purpose with others' sense of purpose. Jesus, Schleiermacher said, wasn't to be understood as God incarnate, but as someone who achieved the perfect realization of his union with all others and especially with God. In other words, no one felt more alive and connected than Jesus. He was our, quote, great pioneer, unquote, in the realm of the spirit and morality who paved the way for us to achieve the same kind of connectedness. Schleiermacher's ideas set the stage of liberalism's two great theological innovations, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of humanity. The faith's center shifted from the scriptures to individual experience. Schleiermacher was such a titan of liberalism that he's known today as the father of modern theology. Albrecht Ritchell elaborated on Schleiermacher's ideas by asking a practical question, what must I do to be saved? But for liberalism, salvation isn't a matter of going to heaven after you die. Salvation is liberation from sin, and sin for liberals is alienation and isolation, a loss of the feeling of connectedness with others. So to be saved means a life free from selfishness. And no one did that better than Jesus. So Ritchell accepted the demythologized historical Jesus produced by higher criticism and used him as the template for what a genuine, authentic human being looks like, what a life worth living sounds like. Christians ought to follow Jesus, Ritchell said, not because he would lead them to heaven, but because he would lead them to their true selves. In the late 19th century, many Christians found these ideas helpful because, well, they seemed to take it away from the very fronts that rationalist critics were attacking. What did it matter if skeptics said that virgin birth was a myth? Christianity wasn't dependent on that. In fact, nothing the rationalists said harmed anything the faith said was important because rationalism had nothing to do with wonder and awe and feeling. Liberalism didn't intrude into just a single or even a small number of denominations. It challenged traditional orthodoxy across Europe and North America. When it first emerged, it was battled hard by conservative leaders and theologians, but it eventually won out in many seminaries and colleges, and eventually in many mainline denominations, where its ministers were fed a heavy dose of it in their schooling. In conclusion, traditional orthodox theology regards liberalism as heretical because it denies the essentials of the Christian faith. Those essentials are well known to the subscribers of Communio Sanctorum, who remember how earnestly those early church leaders labored over exactly how to express what it believed about who and what Jesus was, and made clear that he was nothing less than God incarnate, two unmixed natures and one integrated person. Jesus is indeed our example, but he's not just that. He's also the Savior whose death atones for sin and whose resurrection bestows the power of a new life. Yes, feeling is important in the Christian life, but it's feeling founded firmly on fact. Believers don't check their brains at the door. They use them to love the unseen God by serving those they do see. Amen.